Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 66, June 20th to June 26th, 1862. Last week, we saw some scattered events, including the turning away of the federal forces in an attempt to take Charleston by land. Everyone should get comfortable being in Richmond for the next few weeks because we are just beginning the string of battles known as the Seven Days. We start with Oak Grove, but first, let's set the table so we have a better understanding of the situation building off of last week. First, though, I do want to mention that our Patreon content should be posted. If you take a look at the Patreon feed, should be on there. We have a slideshow very similar to P Ridge on there, and this time it is of Gaines's Mill. I know technically that battle will be next week, but it should be posted now, so it will be a good companion when we talk about that battle. You can see the modern-day battlefield and what it looks like. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, Once again, that is in the description, the link to the Patreon. Something we do not really talk about when connected with the seven days is what if McClellan had McDowell's full 30,000 men move down north of Richmond. It's a fair point, and based off my conversation last week, it's safe to assume probably sit around and do nothing. But, and that saying goes, if it's and buts, or candy nuts, we'd have Christmas every day. But, if McDowell had moved south beyond Fredericksburg, then it is possible that he would have posed a major problem. Not because of the simple math that the Union would hold a numerical advantage, but they would also be directly in the path that Jackson was about to take to join Lee. McDowell would have made Jackson take a longer route, delaying Jackson, or if he was in an advanced position, he would have come in behind McDowell. With 16,000 men, Jackson would have been outnumbered and in a position to force battle on McDowell. It's pretty easy to imagine that Jackson having 16,000 men might have been a match for McDowell, so even though he doesn't have as many men, then McDowell's still going to have to go up against Jackson, and that's more than likely going to come out in favor of the Confederacy. So it's an interesting thought, and it definitely would have greatly altered the outcome of the seven days as their events are about to unfold had this happened. Lee does have a decision to make once his army is to its full capacity, or full potential capacity, I guess I should say. Remember that Jackson had proposed to invade the North, and to do so, he was going to need 30,000 men. He had already received a brigade of 3,000 from Georgia under Lawton, as well as William H. Chase Whiting's division, but more would be required. Furthermore, it would remove Lee's capability to wage an offensive war like he wanted. With Jackson, though, as we discussed briefly last episode, 
he would have 90,000 men with additional reinforcements coming from South Carolina and North Carolina. One of these units was under Ripley, having transferred because he could not stand John C. Pemberton, if you recall from Secessionville. Jackson would join a conference along with other senior generals of the Army, Longstreet, and D.H. Hill. Stonewall would ride well ahead of his troops and throughout the night to get there. In fact, no one knew he was gone. This is where we start to see signs of Jackson's battle fatigue, pushing himself to the limit after an already hard campaign in the valley. Now why does Lee decide to attack, other than that he has a relatively equal force to his enemy? Well, McClellan has heavy siege guns, and he has more of them. A siege would most likely result in the fall of Richmond. Rather than sit back and allow this to happen, Lee's aggressive nature took over. Rather than invite discussion, Lee would invite his commanders to see his attack plan. It was decided that there would be an attack, but where was the question? Fortunately for Lee, he had extensive knowledge of the right flank of the Union Army to the north, because Stuart had just conducted his ride around McClellan. It was during that raid where Stuart had discovered that Porter and the flank were in the air, meaning that they were not supported and could potentially be turned. If Jackson was able to exploit this flank, supported by crossing of the Chickahominy by Longstreet and the Hills, then it could be a smashing victory for the Confederacy. Porter and his 30,000 men were stationed here, and they were exposed. Destruction of this force would have the added benefit of cutting the Union Army from their supply base at White House Landing, which had been passed over by Stuart. Jackson, being the farthest away from the Confederate forces, would set the date for the offensive as June 26th. McClellan would actually strike first before Lee could kick off his attack with a skirmish at a place called Oak Grove. Now, McClellan had not been idle all this time. Instead, he was building up his defenses and trying to build bridges. If there was one thing that Engineer McClellan knew, it was how to build earthworks and conduct a siege. John Barnard, who, if you remember, was setting up the defenses around Washington, was the chief engineer and pointed to McClellan as part of the problem. McClellan was not waiting for the bridges. The bridges were waiting for McClellan, he would write, which displays exactly what his attitude of his superior was. Roads and bridges were necessary for supply and to bring up the heavy siege guns so as to pound the rebels into submission. Satisfied these were in place and there were sufficient defenses to defend against a Confederate counterattack, Little Mac would want to move his army forward. Oak Grove was named as such because of a group of oak trees and shared some of the ground of the old Seven Pines or Fair Oaks battlefield. 
there are soldiers' accounts of stumbling on the dead of the actions prior at Oak Grove. This showed exactly how close the battlefields were. McClellan wanted to get things started against Lee, because Lee had not exactly been idle either. Earthworks had been dug, some of them using the very same that Silas Casey had used during Seven Pines. Silas Casey, by the way, despite being exposed and commanding inexperienced and ill-supplied troops, was relieved for his trouble. Everything was set for the Army of the Potomac to make their move. High ground around the Nine Mile Road and a place called Old Tavern would be the objective. This high ground would be useful for continued operations and the use of heavy artillery. Joseph Hooker and Phil Kearney of the Third Corps would be tasked with the job of advancing to this area. These troops were already veterans at this point, having been placed into combat at Williamsburg and then Fair Oaks. Leading Hooker's men would be the Excelsior Brigade, commanded by Daniel Sickles. One of the regiments in this brigade had not seen any fighting yet, which is going to prove important for the battle to come. June 25th would be the jump-off point, one day before Lee, which led him to believe that this was in fact a spoiling attack. Intelligence was coming in that Jackson was on his way, so McClellan would have some idea of Lee's plan. But this was not necessarily connected. It is interesting to note that Little Mac was happy to see Johnson go and Lee be placed in command. Such a strange fact considering that Lee preferred the young Napoleon as well. Famously, Lee is quoted at lamenting the fact that McClellan eventually gets replaced. His reasoning was that both generals understood one another. This understanding would go beyond tactical. Lee's wife had been ferried through the lines to cheering troops prior to the seven days, so there was a degree of both sides being cordial. McClellan had even attempted to exceed his authority and seek a peaceful end to the war, which, as you can imagine, did not go over well with radical Republicans. We should also note that the Army of the Potomac did love McClellan because he did not want to sustain heavy casualties. His letter to his wife after Seven Pines being a case in point example. Now in this area at Old Tavern was the relatively inexperienced division of Benjamin Huget. Huget, you remember, had been blamed for the debacle at Seven Pines, not arriving in time. While this is not exactly fair, it does show, and we are going to see time and time again, that Huget is not capable of commanding troops in the field, especially in large quantity. Still, fresh off this setback, there may have been some need for redemption. Union brigades under Sickles, Grover, and Robinson of Kearney's division would advance toward Oak Grove, on the site of the present-day Richmond International Airport. Grover has mostly Massachusetts regiments, while Robinson has the 20th Indiana and the 105th Pennsylvania, nicknamed the Wildcat Regiment. Their advance was good, except for the New Yorkers, 
who had trouble getting through the abattis. Ambrose Wright's brigade would launch a well-timed counterattack, which included a regiment of Georgia troops in suave uniforms. This would add to the confusion for the Union regiments. Robert Ransom's brigade of North Carolina regiments would also join the fight, and place a volley on the 71st New York. This 71st New York was in Sickles' brigade, and crucially, it was the one who was yet unbloodied. The volley caused them to retreat, which Sickles would refer to as a disgraceful confusion. McClellan would arrive on the scene late, commanding the troops from a telegraph office, and order a renewed assault, with fighting taking place into the darkness, the men having to bed down in the areas that had twice seen combat. Not much was really gained by the Union Army, with casualties being 626 for the Union and 441 for the Confederacy. It is significant, because this is the first battle of the Seven Days, so we have officially kicked that off. Despite being the aggressor early, McClellan would revert to his cautious nature. He would believe that Lee had 200,000 men now, perfect to halt his offensive. It was more perfect for Lee, though, because his attack plan would unfold on the 26th. As long as Jackson was in place, everything was ready. It is really weird considering that McClellan and Porter knew that Jackson was coming. They had been fed potentially false information by a planted deserter, but it was correct in that he was on the way. A.P. Hill was in position to engage the Union front while the Valley Army hit them in the flank. Once that happened, D.H. Hill and Longstreet would attack in echelon, completing the victory and striking what would hopefully be a tough blow to McClellan and his army. Maybe then he would actually need those reinforcements he always claimed to. Facing off against Hill was the Pennsylvania Reserve Division under McCall. There were three brigades, one under Truman Seymour, another under John Reynolds, and a third under Meade. Truman Seymour was a Vermont native who had attended university briefly before attending West Point. Seymour has actually been in our story before, being stationed and participating in the action at Fort Sumter. He will continue to command troops throughout the war, taking part in the Florida Campaign. At the Battle of the Wilderness in 1864, he will be taken prisoner. Retirement from the Army would come in 1876. John Reynolds was from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and was an interesting officer in the war. Prior to the conflict, he had attended West Point and served on the frontier. Reynolds would rise all the way to the rank of Major General. He was outspoken in the removal of Burnside and Hooker from the Army Command, and was supposedly offered command himself by Lincoln following Chancellorsville. Declining due to no guarantees that he would remain free of political involvement, he would settle for wing command, being under his former subordinate, Meade. This would be a fateful decision for Reynolds as he rode to a small Pennsylvania town called Gettysburg. On the Confederate side, A.P. Hill was prepared to get into it, 
he was eager to prove himself worthy of his command, despite having untested troops for the most part. June 26 would see everything in place. Everything, that is, except for Jackson. But where was Jackson? Jackson's march to try to get to the field was an adventure. There were logistical problems with the railroad, and of course some of the officers were not satisfied with the lack of communication on behalf of their superior. When Jackson had moved to connect with Lee at his headquarters at the Dab House, he likewise had told them very little of the plan or where they were going, so there was no sense of urgency. This general lack of urgency would continue. It's kind of like watching a football game where one team's losing, and they don't seem to understand they need to get into their two-minute offense, and the seconds are just ticking away. Unfortunately, Jackson would not be able to call timeout, so I'm assuming he had none of those left. The commanding officer, as we have mentioned, was not in a hurry either. Jackson was pious and would spend the day recognizing the Sabbath. The Reverend Dabney was on Stonewall's staff and gave a 35-page sermon to those gathered. Now, Dabney was also in a tough position, being in charge of the unit's march at certain points, but he was no soldier. It should have been on his superior. Did he not understand Lee's orders? Did he not really understand the objective? It's unclear. At one point, a staff officer writes that he finds Jackson leaning against a tree and telling a story. There is also an issue that Jackson takes the wrong road, local guys being somewhat of an issue. Lack of control, I think, is a problem for Jackson. In the valley, he had good maps and good guides. Terrain was also used to his advantage. Being unfamiliar with the roads and the terrain may have caused the slow pace. Suspecting the Union Army to just be sitting around the bend of the road is a likely culprit. The fact of the matter remains that Jackson does not effectively turn the Union flank. Spoiler alert, he does not make it to the battlefield, and even when he does, he's not in the right spot. It does actually play into a positive for the Confederate Army, though, that we will discuss shortly. A.P. Hill is going to grow tired of waiting, though, and decide he's not going to wait any longer. Lawrence O'Brien Branch is supposed to give him word of when he connects with Jackson, but, despite not having received this word, he's going to launch his attack. A.P. Hill needed to pressure the front of the enemy line if the plan was going to work, so he surmised he might as well attack anyway. Now the Pennsylvania Reserves had lined up along a steep bank of Beaver Dam Creek. The creek has only two major crossing points, one of which is at Ellerson's Mill. Rifle pits were easily covered by thick brush, and the steep bank was a natural defensive position. Hill's division would advance through the town of Mechanicsville and attack the Union line to get things started. 
Hill has under him Charles Field, Dorsey Pender, and James Archer. Charles Field was a Kentucky native, but descended from Virginia stock. He was a converted cavalry officer who had gone on to command infantry. After the war, he would be a military advisor in Egypt. William Dorsey Pender was a West Point graduate who had served on the Pacific Coast prior to the war. He will be mortally wounded at Gettysburg. James Archer was born in Maryland and served in the war with Mexico. He will be captured at Gettysburg, his confinement affecting his health, and be responsible for his death before the end of the war. There was also a brigade under Joseph Reed Anderson, who owned Tredegar Ironworks. Despite a spirited yell and a fierce assault, the carnage on the side of the Confederates was dreadful. Union troops would pour shots into the oncoming gray and butternut masses. Canister would likewise do heavy tolls on the attackers, cutting large swaths into their ranks. Anderson would be repulsed further north, with the main attacks in the center going just as well as his. Ripley's brigade from Hill's division would be thrown into the fray as they approached the field, the first of Hill's men to arrive for the planned attack. They too would be roughly handled by the Federals, as the 44th Georgia would suffer 335 out of 514 casualties in their vain effort. Overall, the Rebels were never able to pull off numerical superiority, as was Lee's plan. They were using some 11,000 men against some 14,000, which was not the idea of the assault. Lee had been hearing the sounds of combat, but still unaware of Jackson's whereabouts. Branch was reportedly aware of where Jackson was, but there was no communication. Jackson had been running behind, something we have discussed earlier. Even with the arrival of additional troops from D.H. Hill, the attacks were called off. Beaverdam Creek, also called Mechanicsville, would produce Confederate losses at 1,400. This was compared to only 361 Union casualties, making for a very one-sided affair. McClellan would be elated at the repulse of the rebel troops, writing that his army was invincible. But things would turn from all-time high to all-time low for Little Mac. He had thought that Jackson was the one assaulting him at Beaverdam Creek. George even writes his wife that Jackson was his most recent victim. Not exactly sure what list of victims he's going off of, but nevertheless, Jackson is claimed to be the most recent one. The knowledge that Jackson was not present and still out there with his 23,000 men was concerning. McClellan would move Porter out of his line on Beaverdam Creek into a new line which would comprise of a place called Gaines's Mill. Let's go ahead and pause there. This week, we can officially say we have opened up the Seven Days Battles. There was a first, smaller engagement at Oak Grove, and then we have a larger engagement at Beaverdam Creek. Lee will have suffered yet another setback and be denied a great victory at the gates of Richmond. 
D.H. Hill would say it best when he commented that the assaults were the type of grandeur that the Southern cause could not afford. Next week, we're going to continue the campaign with Gaines's Mill, Savage Station, and Glendale. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.